I'm reading the first 15 verses of John 4, if you would like to follow along. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But that water that I shall give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Chances are that every one of us in this room has had more than one chance encounter with a person And that person or that encounter had some impact on our lives. A long time ago, I walked through the door of a Christian bookstore in Lansing. I was pastoring my first church. I was wondering where I might go to seminary. I was considering a couple in Michigan that was disappointed by their stand on the scriptures. And just coming out of the bookstore was a man that I knew casually who told me about a seminary in the Chicago area that had an innovative program for pastors. Pastors could go to school all day on Tuesday, earn credit toward graduation, and not have to come back for the rest of the week. And it was because of that conversation, which I would have missed if I or he were just a minute earlier or later, that led me to the seminary from which I eventually graduated. Some time ago, I was driving west on I-69, and I came to the intersection of 69 with M23, just south of Lennon. And as I was going past the intersection, a familiar car came on the on-ramp just ahead of me. I recognized the car. It belonged to a lady who had been a member of my first church, a lady who had been a good friend in Christ for 40 years, a woman who eventually became a part of this worshiping congregation. I had followed her on that highway without her knowing I was there less than a hundred yards when her 
car blew a front tire. It swerved to the left, it swerved to the right, it rammed into the guardrail alongside the road. And I pulled off and hurried back to see her. And there in the crowd of strangers who stopped to help and eventually policemen and EMTs, I know that it was comforting to, for her to see a familiar face in that setting. And I was thankful to God for the opportunity to be there. Years ago in my first church, a farmer and his wife unexpectedly invited me out for dinner on a Sunday afternoon. I went out to the house and about halfway through the dinner there was a shower of gravel in the driveway and a really very pretty young lady driving a brand new Ford Mustang jumped out of that car, came into the house. She said, oh, I didn't know you have company. But she turned out to be very solicitous of me, making sure my coffee cup was full. I was driving a Volkswagen. She said, I've never driven in a Volkswagen. So we took a ride. And two and a half years later, we exchanged those words and those tokens that made us one in Christian marriage. And that was 42 years ago. I have reason to believe that was not a chance encounter, but it's a nice story. <laughs> and she's not here this Sunday to tell you her side of it. So. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. You have stories like that. Perhaps stories involving the way you met the person sitting at your side in worship today. People who showed up mysteriously in your life, changing the course of your life in ways that proved to be good and beneficial. Those are beautiful stories. And as Christians, the better we get to know our God and his son Jesus, which means, in effect, the better we get to know the Bible, which is his word, the more certain we become that those chance encounters are not chance encounters at all. That as a matter of fact, the same God who assigned paths to the stars through the universe and appointed orbits for the planets is the one who so directs our lives that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Once we remembered those chance encounters with surprise and wondered what would have happened if it didn't happen, now most of us remember them with a deep sense of humility and thanksgiving that God is on his throne and is very literally directing traffic in our lives. In the fourth chapter of John, we find the record of what appears to be and certainly seemed to one of its recipients to be a chance encounter. I want to talk with you about this event today and next Sunday, and I urge you, if you haven't recently, to read this fourth chapter of John. Read it slowly. Read it thoughtfully. There are many, many questions that emerge as we read these familiar words. It's hard to place some events recorded in the Gospel of John in chronological order. I don't mean this as a criticism of John because John does not claim to be writing history. Luke makes that claim, and so if we found something out of order in Luke, we'd have reason to wonder, but we don't. But John claims to be writing of things that he heard and he saw inspired by the Spirit of God with the goal of increasing, of bolstering, of strengthening the faith, and thus the joy and the hope and the peace of Christian people. And so it is not necessary to accomplish that end, that he write everything in order. But our tendency is to assume that things that happened in chapter 2 happened before things in chapter 3, that happened before things in chapter 4, and so forth. 
We read the first two and about a quarter chapters up through the end of the wedding of Cana of Galilee and that first miracle that Jesus performed. And it seems that everything up to that point is written in order. And in fact, there John is counting days. He refers to the first day and the second day and the third day. But after the wedding at Cana, it can be argued that the chronology of John's gospel is cast aside as he brings up events and conversations and teachings according to the logic of his purpose, not necessarily in order of their occurrence. For example, in the second chapter, we read of the cleansing of the temple. And a strong argument can be made that that is an event that did not take place twice, but only once, and that in the last week of Jesus' life, and yet John places it in the second chapter right after the miracle at the wedding in Cana. The last chapter of the first chapter of John, the last paragraph of the first chapter, and the opening paragraph of the second chapter make mention of miracles or signs that Jesus has performed, and yet to that point John has only mentioned one of them, suggesting that those are actually references to events that took place much later in Jesus' life. And the fourth chapter begins by making reference to the Lord's making more disciples than John the Baptist, which would have been far more likely to be an accurate observation late in Jesus' ministry than early. In the eighth chapter of this gospel, Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Every word in the gospel of John is a part of the word of God. Every word is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is absolutely true and completely reliable. And my point is not to question the authenticity of the gospel, but merely to point out that its contents are not intended to be in a chronologically precise account of what John records. In the first verse, John writes that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made him baptize more disciples than John, although Jesus did not baptize but his disciples. This is a useful reference in arguments about baptism that sometimes take place in the church because some of you are aware that in the wider church there are those who insist that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You can repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and keep the Ten Commandments and go to church every Sunday and approach the gates of heaven and God will slam the door in your face because you're not wet, according to the teachings of some churches. And there are others who believe that the rite of baptism has a certain magical effect upon its worthy recipients, changing their character, increasing their faith, granting them grace from God, improving their life and their relationship with God in some way. Our view of baptism is that is very important, that it was commanded by the Lord and it is not to be neglected by his people, but it is not necessary for salvation and no child and no adult is changed in any way by its administration. In the text, we find the story of a woman who was a Christian. I have no doubt that we will see her somewhere around the throne in heaven. But if they who take a more extreme view of baptism, its necessity, or its benefits than ours, 
we have to ask, why didn't Jesus baptize her on the spot? There was plenty of water. There was a well right there. Why didn't Jesus baptize her? Or if for reasons that can be imagined but aren't disclosed, Jesus chose not to baptize himself, why didn't he say to her, you need to wait right here because my disciples are coming back and one of them will baptize you before you go home? Why didn't that happen? If those who disagree with us about baptism are right about baptism. Her dryness at the end of the story seems to support the traditional Protestant view of baptism. Reference to baptism here raises some puzzling question. If we take what John says at face value, without delving into it in any depth at all, we get the impression that people were baptized in conjunction with the public ministry of Jesus, although Jesus himself did none of those baptisms but his disciples did. Now, having said that, let me remind you that there is not a single reference in any of the Gospels to anybody being baptized in conjunction with the earthly work of our Lord Jesus Christ. After he had died and risen and ascended and the Spirit had come, his disciples baptized. But before that, there is not a single reference to anybody being baptized as a result or as a part of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus. The John the Baptist came preaching, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's statement about baptism would easily give us the impression that if people were baptized in conjunction with Jesus' ministry, it took place very early because there is no reference to it later where we would expect it to be. But then for some reason, Jesus abandoned the practice, giving rise to the question, why? If it was right to do, why did he stop doing it? If it was wrong to do, why did he start doing it? And again, I remind you that there is no reference to anybody being baptized by any of Jesus' disciples while they were Jesus' disciples. The answer to this riddle might be found in taking a very closer look at what John is saying and asking ourselves the question, is John recording what actually happened or is he reporting what the Pharisees had heard was happening. You understand those would be two possibly very different things. What was heard to be happening might be very different from what was actually happening. They had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And that puts this part of John into the context of conversation or rumor, meaning that the inspired record of what was said is true but the content of what was said may not be, and that view does no violence to our view of Scripture. They had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, which was at best only partially true. He was making disciples, but it's clear that he was not baptizing them. And this solves the riddle except for the reference to his disciples. The impression is that while Jesus didn't, they did. 
But you'll notice it's in the past tense. They did baptize, not they were baptizing. It is almost certainly true that every one of Jesus' disciples, these main disciples, these 12 that we think of, had been disciples of John the Baptist. That they had heard him preach, they believed what he said, they were baptized by him. And we also know about these men that they were really incredible individuals. They were not only intelligent men of strong character, high values, deep faith, but they also possessed native leadership skills. In fact, we understand that Jesus handpicked them and then personally trained them for positions of leadership in the church that he came to establish. It is not unlikely that John the Baptist would have recognized these skills and these abilities in them as well. There must have been times when John the Baptist was overwhelmed by the hundreds of people who came to him for baptism as a result of his ministry. And very likely that he recruited these men as his lieutenants to assist him in that work. And thus the reference here may simply be to their role baptizing as the disciples of John the Baptist, not as our Lord Jesus. If this is true, then it allows us to step down off the horns of the apparent dilemma these words taken merely at face value would place us in. And thus John 4.1 might be saying, Jesus did not baptize, nor did his disciples as his disciples, although his disciples had baptized as the earlier disciples of John the Baptist. If you disagree with that, I'd like to hear about it, not right now necessarily, that uh, we might uh, educate one another. Jesus was in Judea at the beginning of this chapter. Hostility against him was on the rise among Pharisees and others. And because his hour had not yet come, in which these godless men would be goaded into playing their assigned roles in redemptive history, Jesus decided to leave, to let things cool down, and John said he had to go through Samaria. If you're familiar with the geography of the Holy Land in the first century, you know that these three provinces, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, were stacked like crates one on top of the other. The southernmost on the bottom of the pile is Judea, in the middle is Samaria, and at the top is Galilee. Their common border on the west was the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Their common border on the east was the Jordan River. And those unfamiliar with cultural tensions of the first century, for it to say that Jesus needed to go through Samaria was simple because that's the shortest route. Just like a Michigan driver traveling from Pontiac to Saginaw has to go through Flint. So a man traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north would find it necessary to pass through Samaria. But Google directions of the time were complicated by the fact that the Jews ordinarily would have nothing to do with the Samaritan people or with their land. And the reasons for this were historic and they were religious. You remember that after Solomon, the Old Testament kingdom of Israel was divided. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom became Judah. You'll also remember, I'm sure, that idolatry and sexual sins were more prominent in Israel to the north than they were in Judah to the south. And that in the late 8th century before Christ, the patience of God ran out with this northern kingdom. 
The Assyrians were caused to sweep over the borders of the nation, decimating its people, killing many, carrying many others off into captivity. Some Israelites remained in the land. The Assyrians brought in captives from other lands to repopulate Israel. This was their policy, moving people around, breaking up concentrations of loyalists and nationalists and diminishing the possibility of rebellion against the empire. The result was a half-breed people who continued to boast of ties to the northern tribes and maintained a religion similar to that of the Jews. But the Jews considered them fraudulent and unclean and avoided them in their land whenever possible. One of the sharpest insults that a Jew could direct against another person was to call him a Samaritan, as they did to Jesus, and is recorded in the eighth chapter of the same gospel. The gospel reminds us that Jesus came to be the savior of all kinds of people. This was a hard lesson for his Jewish followers to learn. And to make the point that Jesus came for all kinds of people, and all kinds of people includes the Samaritans, it is very deliberately recorded in the Gospels that when Jesus healed ten lepers, only one came back to thank him, and that one leper was a Samaritan. And you remember that Jesus made a good Samaritan the hero of one of his best-known parables. And in the first chapter of Acts, his last meeting with his disciples, he says to them, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and on to the ends of the earth. You and I are reminded by this, that God is not as biased and prejudiced as we sometimes tend to be. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is to appeal to and to save all kinds of people, and not just those kinds of people that we might be comfortable with or approve of. But when John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it was not to make some political or cultural point. Jesus had to go through Samaria, as we will read in just a couple of verses, because he had an appointment there. He had an appointment with a lady who didn't know that she had an appointment, just like you and I didn't know that we had an appointment when Christ came to us. That appointment was at the well, just outside the walls of her city, and it was to be at about noon on a particular day. When Jesus and his disciples arrived at the place, it was a city called Sychar, they stopped at a well. We are told that it was hot that the Lord was weary as a result of his journey. Jesus was weary. This is one of many references in the Bible to the humanity of the Son of Man. We know and we celebrate his Godhood. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is eternal. He is holy. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. All of the adjectives that we use to describe God can be used to describe Jesus. But we mustn't lose sight of his humanity, his hunger in the wilderness, his thirst on the cross, 
his despondency at the death of John the Baptist, his tears of Lazarus' grave. All of these and more remind us that he who is fully God indeed was fully man. With this in mind, we find these words in Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Bible reminds us that the one we call Savior, the one we trust as Lord, experienced life in the flesh, all of its trials, its weariness, its hunger, its thirst, its frustrations, its loneliness. And knowing that allows us to step into his presence, knowing that we have in him a sympathetic ear and heart. His disciples went into town to buy food, we are told. Some commentators imply that this was their idea, that they were acting out of sympathy and generosity, as if they said to their Lord, Lord, you look tired, you're weary, why don't you rest here while we go into town and buy food? It was probably quite different. Everywhere else in the Gospels, where authority and initiative and leadership can be identified, those come from him and not from them. And it is far more likely that he ordered them into the city to buy provisions, saying that he would wait for them and rest near the well. There was a well at the place, a well associated with Jacob, who with his family had lived there 2,000 years before. And this particular well involved what would have been called in that time living water. It was a spring, a spring that had been walled up to make a kind of pool to which people could go with their water pots and their thirst and be satisfied. Because of the water, there would be trees nearby, and it may have been in the shade of one of those trees or perhaps in the shade of the well itself, that Jesus sat and rested and waited. We see the Lord glancing at his watch once in a while, looking down the road. And we lift our eyes and we look down the road and in the distance we see the figure of a woman coming toward us, balancing a pot of some kind on her head. And as you read this chapter in the fourth of chapter, if you read this fourth chapter of John, I want to ask you to look at this woman. And I want you to answer for yourself, what do I see when I look at this woman? Do you see the face of a young woman, a middle-aged woman, a lady of many, many years? And what reason do you see in the text to make any assumption at all about her age? Do you see the hard face of a person who has lived for years in open rebellion against God and his standards, or the softer features of a woman whose mind and heart are open to the Lord? And as you read this chapter, what evidence do you find that might suggest her standing in the community? Is she a woman shunned and scorned, or a person with at least a modicum of respect among her neighbors? 
And as you look at this woman in the fourth chapter of John, how is she dressed? Is she modestly attired or wearing clothing so revealing that if you look very, very carefully, you can see her character? And as you read this chapter, ask yourself the question, at what point in this exchange was she born again? She was born again. There's no doubt about that. When was she born again? Is an intriguing question for students of the Bible and the faith that it contains. In the evangelical church, we love conversion stories, particularly in churches that are more Arminian than ours happens to be. And the more dramatic the conversion story, the better we love it. The blacker a sinner's heart before he came to the Lord, the more corrupt his life, the worse his reputation, the more compelling we find his story to be. I grew up as a young Christian hearing and reading these stories. And I remember feeling a little ashamed of my own story because it was so tame when compared with those heralded from the pulpit and inscribed on the pages of devotional literature. In the Bible, the stories of the conversions of Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king of ancient Babylon, and Saul, the persecutor of the church, are far better sermon topics than the more tame experiences of Philip and Nathaniel and their like. The love for good conversion stories in which Christ makes an almost visible difference in a person's life between utter blackness and glorious life might cause some preachers and theologians to leap at the opportunity to paint as black a picture as possible of the lives of men and women who come to Christ, sometimes going beyond the facts as they are reported. One example of a man who is treated in that way by commentators and by preachers is Zacchaeus, the tax collector whose encounter with Christ is recorded in the ninth chapter of, 19th chapter of Luke. And another, in my opinion, is this unknown woman of Samaria. It is not for us, without evidence, to sympathize with her or to paint an unreasonably rosy picture of her life and character, but at the same time, it is not our place, apart from evidence, to judge her. I urge you to look at her as openly and honestly as you can, not through the lens of things that you've heard and seen, read about her in other times and other places, but merely in terms of what we know for sure about her from the pages of the Word of God. And I believe that if we do that, the result will be a kinder treatment than she is commonly afforded. She draws near the well. She looks up and she sees a stranger, apparently Jewish, from his garb and she hesitates. For she, in the course of her life, has had other unpleasant experiences with Jewish men and isn't about to volunteer for another. But Jesus sees her, and at least on the stage of my imagination where this drama plays itself out, he stands up, he steps away from her and from the well, indicating by the gesture his respect for her and that he means her no harm. Perhaps, hesitantly, she comes to the well. She sets her pot on the cap around the top of the well, 
fastens a line to it and lowers it, maybe keeping an watchful eye on him at the same time. Neither one of them speak. She brings her pot dripping up from the water, puts it on the edge, maybe is winding her cord around it, about to make her way home when Jesus speaks. And he says, in effect, would you please give me a drink? She's surprised by this. Not only that he would speak to her, not only that he would speak to her in probably soft and respectful tones, but that he, as a Jew, would ask a drink from the water pot of a Samaritan. Because the Jews regarded their northern neighbors as being unclean in a moral and religious sense, and it would be unthinkable for any one of them to drink from a vessel from which a Samaritan had drunk. And yet here this Jewish man asks this woman of Samaria for a drink of water from her water pot. His manner, his tone of voice, his request were the beginning of signs to her that she was standing in the presence of the most unusual man that she would ever meet. The woman expresses her puzzlement and the Lord responds, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, may I have a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Not stale water, sitting in a pot through the day, barely able to slake one's thirst and unpalatable to the taste, but fresh, cold, running water that satisfies both thirst and taste. In symbolic form, this is what Jesus offered this woman. And hidden in the Lord's words is the fact that true faith involves much more than stale doctrines and rituals and rules of behavior. As important as such things as these are, real faith entails a living relationship with God. A relationship that causes our consciences to come alive and one that delights our minds. A relationship that changes almost every aspect of life and awakens us to the holiness and the glory and the love and the mercy of God. There will be people in hell who in life were intimately acquainted with the jots and tittles of good theology. People with strong moral values. People who went to church almost every Sunday. But there will be no person in hell who was drawn into a personal living relationship with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sensing, not knowing, but sensing something wonderful and mystical and true in this encounter and in these words, this woman said to our Lord, give me this water. And we remember that Jesus had said, he who, blessed, are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. May it be true, by the grace of God, that every one of us has deep within him this fountain of living water that refreshes in time and carries its own safely out into eternity. Let us pray. Our Father, whatever else we learn or think or consider as we study this passage, may each one of us here who knows you be reminded of that time when Jesus met us, 
wherever it was and whenever it was. May our joy be great as we reflect upon that time. May we be reminded that the hand by which he took us at that time is the hand from which he promised no one would ever take us away. May he be our peace and our joy. May it be our desire each day to live only so as to honor and to serve him. We pray.